electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Crisis in America. Tonight, the problems on both fronts, the virus and the protests some of which have turned violent. We'll get to the underlying issues from income inequality to questions of fairness on reopening the American economy. Plus, my class had 1,400 kids in it. There were nine African-American kids. The personal stories of CEOs. It's been a roller coaster ride since um, for the last 48 hours. And business owners caught in the crisis. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Good evening. We start this hour with some breaking news happening just moments ago. President Trump speaking from the White House. I'm going to get over to Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Andrew, it was a stunning split screen in our nation's capital this evening. On one screen, you had Lafayette Park just a few hundred yards from the White House, where peaceful protests were broken up with tear gas from police just a few minutes before the city's 7 p.m. curfew this evening. Meanwhile, at that same time, President Trump was in the Rose Garden giving remarks uh, meant to uh, issue a warning to states and cities uh, to crack down on the violence, or he was threatening to send in U.S. military forces. He says he is the president of law and order, and there is one law to keep the nation safe. Here's the president this evening. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. These protests began several days ago and have ballooned across the country uh, in the wake of the death of George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis, at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer. Earlier today, the president held a conference call with the country's governors, where, according to audio obtained by NBC News, the president said if these governors did not crack down on the violence in their own states, they would appear weak and that they needed to use military force or whatever force available uh, within law enforcement to dominate them. Andrew? Kayla, thank you uh, for that report. Uh, With these dual crises weighing on the country, the pandemic, the protests, we have assembled a very special panel this evening to be with us for the hour. Jay Clayton, the chairman of the SEC, Darren Walker, head of the Ford Foundation, Gary Cohn, former economic advisor uh, to the president, and Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner. I want to thank all of you uh, for joining us this evening as we try to wrestle and make some sense of what often seems like a senseless moment in our country 
Uh, Darren, I want to start with you this evening. Uh, you just heard what the president had to say. Uh, inequality is, uh, is a large part of this conversation taking place uh, in America, as we are seeing uh, unrest. The COVID uh, problem uh, is another uh, that we are trying to contend with, and we're trying to do it all at the same time. Uh, if you could just offer some words for us in terms of how you see it and what needs to be done now. If we do anything over the next hour, I hope we can try to come up with some solutions together. Andrew, there are reasons for hope. And I believe that if this nation takes seriously the challenge of inequality, dismantling it, deconstructing it, we can once again be a society where opportunity is our hallmark. But we have lost opportunity and hope as the signature features of our society, in part because we have an economic system and a form of capitalism that is no longer delivering our ideas of shared prosperity. That is the aspiration and the opportunity of capitalism. As a passionate capitalist, I want the system to work, but it has to work for more people, and it has in the past. Unfortunately, we have designed a form of capitalism today. It's no accident. We have made choices, our leaders in, in, in the economy, our leaders in corporate America, our policymakers have made choices that have preferenced and privileged some of us. So it's made choices to grow and amplify assets while making it harder for some Americans and workers to gain access to assets. I'll give you one example. My grandfather, who had a third grade education, grew up in the segregated South. He went to work as a porter at a company in Texas in the 1950s. That company had an employee profit sharing plan. Even though he was a low-wage worker, he got ownership in that company. He retired and lived for 20 years off of the proceeds of that stock in that profit-sharing company. What happened to those programs that allowed workers to share in the assets of a company as they grew? We made choices to allocate those, the bounty, the profits, to fewer people who did not include our workers. And in the process, we have created a system whereby workers and, and working class people feel more alienated from their employers, their, their, the companies um, that employ them, because they more often than not themselves are no longer owners in that company. That's just one example of what we need to do and what we can do if we're to have a kind of economy that generates more shared prosperity. Thank you, Darren. Let me go to Gary. Uh, Gary, I give you an enormous amount of credit because for the last several weeks you've been talking about COVID, but interestingly, you've been talking about in the context of the inequality that it's creating and about so many of the essential workers in this country that have been on the front lines, uh, while so many others uh, 
that might be very well part of the 1%, including folks like us who are coming uh, on this air on Zoom, uh, have, able to be, have been able to be protected. And, and I just want you to speak to the, the need to reopen, which is an issue we're all trying to contend with, but how we can do that in a fair and just way, given these inequalities that we're all wrestling with. Well, th- thanks, Andrew. Look, since the end of March, I've been trying to point out, I, I think what's the obvious is that as we decided what businesses were essential and what business was non-essential, we ended up maybe intentionally or maybe by accident making the largest businesses in America essential, the large box retails, the big companies essential. And we took all the small local businesses, the minority-owned businesses, the family-owned businesses, the family-run businesses, and we said, you're not essential and you have to shut down. And we allowed the bigger businesses to thrive. At the exact same time, we sent the small businesses home. I thought at the time this was wrong because you could buy the exact same goods at the Target or the Walmart or the Kmart as you could at my local shop that was closed. Yes, they sold food and they sold drugs, but they also sold sold clothes and shoes and other goods. And I thought that this was inequality and I thought we would have a problem because people wanted to go to work and they wanted to earn a living and they wanted to feed their families and they were unable to do that. And now we're at the point where I think, and, and Dr. Gottlieb will help us on this, I think we're at a point where we can try and get the small businesses open, but they're going to have to fight for the market share that they lost to the big companies that were allowed to stay open the whole time. Um, I think Heidi Heidkamp uh, is now with us. And, and Heidi, I don't know if you've been able to join us uh, and if you were able to hear earlier uh, President Trump uh, speaking about and really doubling down on this idea of law and order uh, amid, amid this unrest and these protests across the country. Uh, you know, we're also talking about how do you reopen? And, and there's a real question going on here, which is how do you reopen? How do you make people feel comfortable in this country? And it's now not just feeling comfortable uh, about and having confidence in your own health, but it's also uh, having confidence that there is going to be law and order in the streets, but also a sense of justice in the streets. Where, where do you land? What, what should happen here? Andrews, it's so interesting because uh, right off the bat, the president has the law wrong. He can't call out the military to do law enforcement official. There's a law called the Posse Comitatus Law. And instead of standing up and saying, I hear you, these are the things what we're going to do, but we have to maintain law and order. We have to do the right thing um, by the the communities that are peacefully protesting in these businesses who um, really deserve a fair shot of reopening, but it's not going to happen if they're they're looted and destroyed. You know, it's interesting. One thing he could have said is, guess what? I know that almost 95% of all African-American businesses who applied for um, PPP, for the loan program, didn't qualify. That's wrong. We're going to fix that. We're going to give you a greater opportunity. He could have come with about five economic suggestions, including education equality. Instead, he's trying to not fund state and local government, the vast majority of which goes to educating people. And so he just he just sends the wrong message. And the message should be inclusive. I hear you. I'm not going to violate uh, the law. But we need law and order. Can you help me establish that? And we can work together. But you never hear that from the president. 
Jay Clayton, help us with this. I think part of the, part of the conundrum uh, that that the public that the public is grappling with is the issue that the the stock market, which we talk about on this air and this network so often, uh, is basically as high as it's been since since this virus took hold, and even on a day when uh, and a week where we've had so much unrest. Um, there is still, at least within the investor community, optimism, but that optimism translates to wealth among those who have access to it. And so many others who don't, who look at that and say there's something wrong here, there's a disconnect. What do you tell them as somebody who oversees the markets in this country? Hey, Andrew, um, good evening, and it's, um, it's good to hear from, uh, from my friends uh, who, uh, who preceded me. Look, it's a it's a good question, Andrew. Uh, the the stock market, um, and this is uh, I'm not going to talk about valuations. It's not what we do at the SEC. But what it does is it's a it's a reflection of a number of people's views of where companies will be. These publicly listed companies will be in the future. Um, you know, Gary can speak to this. I can speak to this. We're talking about where earnings for these companies are going to be in the future. And the market sentiment these days, whether you look at the stock market, um, the bond market or otherwise, is that we're going to have an economic recovery. Um, that's, that's what the market sentiment is telling us today. Well, let me ask, uh, talking about the market sentiment and this, this sense that there's going to be some kind of V-shaped recovery, let me go to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. There's a big question, and, and maybe Gary and others and, and Darren can, can jump in here as well. Um, but there's a real question, Mark, about how quickly the, co- the country reopens, whether we have enough testing in place, whether we have enough tracing in place, all of these things to make employees, especially those uh, at, at, at the lowest income wages, feel comfortable and confident that their health is going to be uh, in order. And we've even talked about whether we should offer bonuses to try to incentivize people to come back to work. Some people think that's a great idea. There's other people on the other end who say they're called kamikaze bonuses. Um, What do you think is the right answer to get this country back in order from a health perspective? Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. I think from a public health perspective, we're going to be able to successfully make a staged reopening of the country over the next several months. I think that there's going to be a seasonal effect here um, as we get into the summer, and I think we'll be able to restart economic activity uh, and relax the restrictions that have been in place and successfully reopen. I think the risk is really to the fall that we're going to have a level of infection in this country continuing to spread through the summer, albeit at low levels, that sets up the risk of wider spread in the fall. But uh, going into the summer, we should be able to pull this off successfully. The question is, does the consumer come back? Do people have confidence to re-engage in activities in the same way they did previously? And the answer to that may be that they don't, that for a period of time, people don't do things that they did before, and they do things differently, and we can't get back to 100% right away. We have to do things differently and really define a new normal about how we go about our activities. Doctor, though, but here's the question. How much of us getting back to work this summer is, a, is I don't know if this is magical thinking because it seems to be thus far working, but it's not based on the testing and the tracing that folks in the healthcare community like you have advocated for uh, for so long. It's not, it's not based on that. At least it doesn't seem to be at the moment. Am I wrong? Well, the t- I think the testing... Well, the testing is going to be in place, I think, and especially as we look to the fall. We're testing about 500,000 people a day. It's robust. It's growing. 
I think the, um, the platforms to do the testing are going to be ample as we head into the fall because of new technologies that are going to be coming onto the market. The issue is going to be access to testing. The testing is not going to be at the sites and in the communities that it needs to be. It's going to be hard, harder to get tested for COVID than it, needs, than it should be. And we're not going to be doing enough to turn over asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic cases. And so we need to get testing into places like work settings where people are at risk of infection because they can't socially distance at work, um, into housing environments where people are in more crowded housing environments, and that's a risk for spread of COVID, into communities that lack access to health care. And this gets to some of the disparities that are leading to a disproportionate impact of COVID on certain communities. So it's not an issue of, of the testing itself, but access to testing. And as far as tracing is concerned, yeah, you see different states doing different things. We don't have a national coordinated strategy to that. And some states are doing a good job and others aren't investing as much as they should be in those strategies. So, Gary, let me go back to Gary. How do you incentivize folks to go back to work or, or effectively, how do you create enough stimulus in the economy? Whether, whether you have to incentivize people to go back to work or something else, I don't know. But what do you think we have to do from, uh, in terms of where the government needs to be right now in terms of trying to get this economy back on its feet? So, Andrew, I think we have to start with some really basic fundamentals. You know, remember, our kids are not going to school. So a lot of parents are home with their kids. So the first place I would start is I would start with reopening schools, or at least if we miss the school season, we have to get camps open or places where our kids can go and be safe during the summer. So when parents leave the house and they leave their children, they feel comfortable about going into the work environment. I think one of the most imperative things we can do is that we can make sure that we open schools in the fall. That, to me, is essential for getting our economy started and going and continuous on the right path. Then we've got to start the natural multiplier effect of getting people back into the economy. It's relatively simple in some respects. If you're lucky enough to be able to work and work from home, you don't really incur anyone else in your daily occurrence to, to, to work. You basically get out of bed, you go downstairs, or maybe you go upstairs, and you go to work. If you're going to an office, think about what you do in your normal day. You get out of bed, you get in your car, you go to a gas station, someone works at the gas station. You pull into a garage when you get your work, someone works at the garage. You go get a cup of coffee, someone works at the coffee shop. You go into your building, there's a security guard, there's maintenance people, there's, there's janitorial staff. There's a huge multiplier effect to put one person back to work. They need a whole infrastructure to help them get that back to work. But it starts with the basics. It starts with having safe places for our children to go and make sure that we're not all home taking care of sick people. Okay, we're going to continue this conversation and also unpack so many of the interesting ideas that Darren Walker uh, began our conversation with uh, this evening. We'll talk about that and more in just a little bit. But let's show you what else is coming up on this CNBC special report this evening. It was a lot of pain. A business in Minneapolis hit by the virus, then blindsided by protests. His story next. Plus, I think business has to go beyond what is required here. How corporate America can really make a difference. But will it? This CNBC special report is coming right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back this evening. A Minneapolis business owner postponed opening his new sports bar due to the pandemic, only to see it broken into and burned to the ground during this weekend's protest. Here's entrepreneur KB Bala in his own words. It's been a roller coaster ride since um, for the last 48 hours. I, when I seen it the first time, I just kind of broke down. You know, it was um, it was a lot of pain. You know, I'm not against the the protest. I was I was out there protesting with my kids. I was out there yesterday. The, the painful part is when you have a small business owner losing everything they have, investing into the business. That's the part that hurt. Our initial goal was just trying to get, you know, about 100000 just to um, help get stuff started, pay the rent, you know, um, and just buy some equipment. But with so much blessing and the support from nationwide, actually worldwide, because people have been um, donating from everywhere, they just put in a position where we can actually purchase a new building moving forward. That flood of support still coming in. KB's GoFundMe is now at about $1 million. He tells CNBC that his goal is to give back to the community and to pay it forward. Uh, meantime, big businesses across the country issuing responses in support of protests taking place across the country following the death of George Floyd. But are the words and news releases enough? And this is an opportunity for me to get back to Darren Walker right now. Uh, Darren, you know, when you, you led this conversation off, uh, talking about really rethinking capitalism. And one of the questions I'd ask you is, in the private sector, we can talk about what the public sector and what the political class can do about this. But if you were the CEO uh, of a large company today, what is it that you think you can do today? Well, I've spoken with several friends who are CEOs of Fortune 100 companies, and my advice to them is throw out the old playbook. In a crisis like this, CEOs have traditionally done a series of very normative, uh, predictable things uh, to issue a statement, to host a meeting of, of staff, particularly uh, minority staff, to uh, reach out to a group of African-American leaders on a conference call, and to have your corporate philanthropy write a few checks to the UNCF, the NAACP, and the Urban League. That playbook is not going to work this time because more is going to be demanded of corporations and more should be demanded because corporations have a tremendous influence on how we live our lives and the way in which the corporate economy has been structured has ultimately been harmful for our democracy because it has contributed to a fraying of our economic infrastructure, the infrastructure that has always included a mobility escalator because people moved up in wages and compensation and benefits. And what we've seen in recent years is that while we at the top, and I include myself in that group, we have benefited from policy. We've benefited from Fed policy. Who's benefited the most from Fed policy? People with assets. So if you've got real estate 
in New York City or the Hamptons or wherever, if you've got a, a, a broker, you benefited these years. But most Americans actually don't have access to that. And most Americans' wages over the last two decades have lagged behind the compensation that those of us that's at the top have received. And so we have in this country, as a result, a growing cynicism about our American ideals of opportunity and mobility. And that hopelessness is what we're seeing in our streets, that hopelessness which intersects with race. And that hopelessness is going to ultimately be harmful to the social fabric of this, this country, and we're seeing it. Um, hope is the oxygen of democracy. It is what makes it possible to be optimistic. We are asphyxiating optimism and hope by our economic policies and priorities that have privileged people like me at the expense of those workers who we now deem essential. But the essential workers I know have said, please stop running your commercials thanking us and pay us a wage that reflects your appreciation and that allows us to live with dignity. Thank you, Darren. Chairman Clayton, let me ask you this. It's really a governance question. And we've seen the Business Roundtable and others come out and say that a business's purpose is no longer strictly just about profit. Uh, It's about so many other things, including all sorts of constituents, uh, very much including employees. But as you know, there are still laws in this country uh, that say that the profit incentive, if you will, is the law of the land. Do you think that law has to effectively change? Well, Andrew, I, I think I've said this before, and, um, you know, I've never been involved with, and this is predates my time at the SEC, but I've never been involved with a long-term successful company uh, that hasn't been concerned with its employees, um, its customers, its community. That kind of commitment, um, I think, permeates successful organizations. You know, I'm I'm lucky enough right now to um, uh, to be the steward of a, a 5,000 uh, person organization, and I can tell you that through this challenge, um, in order to to um, facilitate keeping the markets open, um, facilitate um, as much commerce as is possible and, and capital raising as is possible in these difficult times, you know, I've seen my people pull together. Um, and they pull together in a way that's a commitment. Now, I recognize this is a government organization, um, but that type of spirit, if you don't develop that type of spirit in your business, be it a, be it a government organization or a commercial organization, your business is not going to be as successful um, as it can be. And I think we all recognize that. And what, I, what I've liked seeing, um, and, and look, you know, do we always have room for improvement? Yes, we do. But what I've liked seeing is people demonstrating how they are investing in their people, how they're coming together. And as our economy moves forward, your investment in your people has become more and more important. If you look at 
um, where we're performing particularly well, it is where businesses have invested in their people, Andrew. Chairman Clayton, there's no question, but let me just follow up with this. You do look at, at big, successful businesses and some of the most successful in the country, Amazon, uh, for example, Walmart, for example. They effectively rely, though, on low-wage workers. And while, while they've definitely worked harder over the past, uh, particularly during this pandemic, to offer what are called hero bonuses and all sorts of things, when people, what I think when Darren's talking about systemic issues in this country, a, a, as good as some employers may be towards their people, there does clearly seem to be a larger problem at hand. Well, Andrew, look, um, let, me, let me come in and, and, and address that. W- one, of, one of the very good things about our economy and the way we approach public companies, and you, you can understand how they operate. And I agree with Darren that investing in people so that they can participate in our economy um, and grow in our economy is something very important. Um, financial literacy. We look at the SEC. We we do. We have a narrow job. I try to keep in our lane. But one of the things we do is financial literacy. And if if you don't have financial literacy, if you don't understand um, how credit affects you as a as a participant in our society, you're behind. And we do need to give people these skills to participate in our in our more modern economy. Um, and, you know, look, there are companies that do and there are companies that don't. But I, I do see companies, I see public sector, private sector companies investing, organizations investing in their people to give them those skills. Would I like to see more of it as a citizen? Of course I would. I think it's important. Okay, Chairman Clay, we'll continue this conversation right after... Darren, jump, jump in, please. I believe I couldn't agree more that we need financial literacy, but there is a fundamental issue when you talk to average Americans living off of the wages that they bring home today, that no amount of financial literacy can make up for the fact that you aren't paid enough to actually pay the, the basic necessities of of living with dignity and i think we we have to we elites and i'm talking about people like me we have to understand how this economic system has to be reformed and it cannot be reformed when we say invest in workers we should be talking about how much are we raising their wages how much are we helping them to be resilient in the face of shocks? How much are we helping them to not have to work full time? There are workers in this country. My mother didn't have much education, but she was able to eke out a living as a single mother because she was paid enough as a nurse's aide to take care of her kids. But today, that is simply not possible. And so we have people, I was talking to a governor just a few weeks ago who was saying she worked hard to woo an employer into her state and has come to understand that a significant number of, that, of the population of jobs are low wage and there, there are employees of that company who are now on the public dole. And so they're working full time but they're still too poor. 
So this is antithetical to our idea of America, the idea that you can work 40 hours a week and still be poor in America is a fundamentally appalling and offensive idea to who we are as a people and our aspirations for each other and this nation. And to change that is going to require fundamental, profound reformation of this economy, starting with corporate boards, CEOs, in ways in which we question practices like prioritizing share repurchases above all other investments. The way in which we have distorted incentives for management that is wholly dependent on the value of the stock and therefore the incentive to buy the stock back. So we have created distortions that people see yep. as system rigging. And that has, yep. that has contributed to the lack of trust that we now see by all, uh, all polls, all uh, surveys. Uh, right. The lack of trust of average workers in their companies, average Americans in the capitalist system. And right. for the first time, we have a generation of downwardly mobile white people in America. We have never in the history of this country had a generation of downwardly mobile white people. That ought to give policymakers something to think about. Uh, well, Darren, you've given us a lot to think about. We'll continue this, uh, this conversation on the other side. Here's what's next on this CNBC special report this evening. Someone intervened to give me an opportunity to close that opportunity gap. One CEO story from the inner city to one of the world's biggest and most successful companies. Plus, no matter how you look at it, income in this country is lopsided. Is it an issue that needs to be fixed? And if so, how? We're back in two minutes. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. When I was growing up in the inner city of Philadelphia, the social engineers in Philadelphia at the time when Dr. King was leading the protest in the 1960s, for reasons I don't yet understand, decided to take a few inner city black kids, put them on a bus, make them ride 90 minutes to different schools to get a rigorous education. I know for sure that what put my life on a different trajectory was that someone intervened to give me an opportunity to close that opportunity gap. And that opportunity gap is still there. In the long run, what's in our enlightened economic self-interest is that for all Americans, to, to, feel a to feel like they're participants in our economy. You know, I'll just say, joblessness leads to hopelessness. Hopelessness leads to what we see in the streets. An emotional moment uh, this morning on Squawk Box. Merck's CEO, Ken Frazier, talking about this pivotal moment in his life and the need to create opportunity for everybody. Um, before uh, we continue with our conversation, uh, we want to get... Uh, Talk a little bit about some symbolism at the White House just a few minutes ago. I want to get back to Kayla Tausche on that. Kayla. Andrew, we want to update you on a surprise visit that the president made just after those primetime remarks in the Rose Garden last hour. Uh, following his comment that he would be visiting a sacred place, he left the White House and walked with his attorney general, his chief of staff, the secretary of defense, his press team, his daughter and his son-in-law across Lafayette Park, the area of the nation's capital that had just moments before that been cleared with tear gas and rubber pellets where peaceful protesters had been. The president here is appearing in front of St. John's Church. It's known as the President's Church. Every president has attended services there. President Trump and his family uh, went to a service on Inauguration Day at St. John's Church, and it sustained a fire overnight. Uh, the president's former director of national intelligence and ambassador to Germany tweeted that this is a moment uh, of hope triumphing over fear. But intended or not, Andrew, this does send another message that the president is willing to do whatever is within his power to vacate premises as needed. Here he is returning to the White House in a pretty remarkable image, flanked on either side by law enforcement, followed by his staff after that visit to St. John's Church across the park. Andrew? Okay, Kayla, thank you for that. Uh, I want to pick up on where our conversation left off right before the break. Uh, Darren Walker talking about uh, the downward trajectory uh, of, of white people in America and, and said that should be a wake-up call for politicians. Let me ask a former politician on our panel uh, this evening, Heidi Heitkamp, uh, about that and, and really whether you think it's actually going to uh, change the dynamic in Washington when it comes to wages and inequality. When you look at the, the demographics and the voting patterns of people who are in that category, they tend to be very much Trump supporters. And we talk about this and we've had a lot of discussions about what does that look like um, kind of going forward for uh, the white uh, middle class uh, diminishing and, and does that mean that we now will have an opportunity to have a discussion about lifting all boats and making sure there's more equality. It hasn't happened so far, and people have felt this uh, economic pressure. But, you know, you also asked, Andrew, what could CEOs do? You know, what, what I've got a suggestion. The four or five largest banks in this country 
got $32 billion of tax relief. Now, they didn't need $32 billion of tax relief. How about if they invested that in minority businesses, actually went in to uh, communities and said, what can we do to help you build a business, to live the American dream, to build entrepreneurship? What can we do to invest in schools? LeBron James is proving in Ohio that those kinds of investments and that hope will pay off in better academic achievement. There are ways to solve this problem, but we have to quit being so selfish. And it seems to me that there's a lot of there's a lot of assets out there. There's a lot of resources out there that could be redirected to communities who have been left behind. And I have to throw in a, a statement about the community in my state that's left behind the uh, Native American community right now down in Navajo. They're experiencing the highest rate of uh, COVID infection. It goes barely noticed in the rest of the world because of the isolation and because of the marginalization. We've got to improve education, but we've got to improve investment, and we've got to realign right. our investment patterns in this country so that we actually are making right. the right choices for the future, the economic future of this country, and that is investing in all of the businesses, right. all of the great ideas, regardless okay. of the color well, of the let skin. Me, well, let, let me ask Gary Cohn. Gary Cohn is our, is our resident banker. He's also your... Your, your fellow teaching mate at Harvard together. So I want to hear what Gary Cohn has to think uh, or what has to say about uh, what Heidi just said when it comes to what banks uh, should or should not be doing. If you were running a bank today, what would you be doing? So Heidi and I always like to disagree a little bit, but on this one, I'm not going to disagree with her. So Andrew, in the entire tax cut, the corporate tax cut was less than $100 billion for every corporation in America. What we try to do is we try to make America more competitive so we could actually bring jobs back to America. The intent was to make our corporate tax code competitive with the rest of the world. We didn't want to see companies leave in the United States. We wanted to see companies investing in the United States and bringing jobs back so we could, in essence, raise wages in the United States. I would encourage banks in the United States to invest in the United States. I don't think I need to encourage them. If you look at the bank CEOs today in the United States, they're some of the more opinionated leaders on investing in the United States, on investing in impoverished neighborhoods, on trying to really put more capital in those neighborhoods, open branches, try and bank more of the country and try and extend more credit. So I think the banking community is trying. They can always try harder. No one's going to say they're perfect. I don't think there's a bank in the United States that would say they're perfect. Gary, let me ask you this. Darren Walker made, made... I, I mean, yeah, if that were true, then you wouldn't have small minority businesses struggling to find capital to get off the ground. Gary? Well, it, it, I agree that it's tough for some minority businesses to find capital. We've got the SBA. You know, the, the Small Business Administration was set up exactly to help small businesses get started and let them be, be, have capital before they, they could get into the banking system. We don't have just large banks in the United States. We have about 6,000 banks in the United States. Now, that's down dramatically over the last 10 years. But we have a variety of different banks, and some of the smaller banks were really designed to help some of the smaller businesses. But really, the SBA, the government agency, is there to help businesses get started. Darren, let me ask you one other question, which is something that Darren brought up earlier, which is 
And it's, it's a big issue in this country right now, which is the issue of buybacks, dividends and the like. Um, and there is an argument that has been made uh, that buybacks are, are only effectively propping up those uh, with assets um, and that they, this money should be invested into the economy. I know you take issue with that, I think. Maybe you've changed your position, but what do you think of it? So, look, Andrew, this is a complicated discussion. So it's not going to be a, 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 an answer I can really get into here. But if you remember back after the 2008 financial crisis, one of the big changes, and we've got Chairman, Chairman Clayton here who, can, who can, can talk to this, one of the big changes was that Congress made it that CEOs and employees of companies ate, quote-unquote, more of their own cooking, which meant that employees got paid with substantially more equity-based compensation than cash-based compensation, and no one had a problem with that. And in fact, most of that equity-based compensation had very long vesting tails and very long delivery tails to make sure that employees were doing the right thing for the long term for the company, for the shareholders, and their clients. As that stock gets delivered over multiple years, the share counts of companies go up dramatically. So you're automatically diluting out existing shareholders. And remember, existing shareholders, one of the biggest shareholders in this country, are the public pensions in this country. So public pensions are teachers, policemen, firemen. They own the companies. If the companies aren't naturally buying back the dilution from compensation stock, they'd just be diluting out their long-term shareholders. Okay. I don't, Again, Darren, I don't disagree that Gary is right, and I, I don't take issue with repurchases as a form of, uh, of, of economic management and incenting uh, behavior. The issue is, at the same time that is happening, wages are not growing and employees are not participants in that growth of the stock over time. And, and that's the issue. I don't want to, I'm not anti-repurchasing. I'm saying that that happens in a context where the average worker is losing ground. And, and so we have to think about a comprehensive strategy if what we want to do is keep middle-class America working and prosperous. These decisions have a consequence. And yes, it's true that public pensions and uh, 403Bs and 401Ks are owners. But if those people are being paid less and less right. in wages, the fact that they are owners in this means that because most of them are now matching um, right. their contributions based on their wages, uh, it means that there's actually less. They are being diluted and their ability to keep up. Darren, we got to pause the conversation for just another moment. We will continue it on the other side of this break. There's a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. From the virus shutdown to violent protests, one business owner's story next. Plus, lessons of leadership in the midst of dueling crises. We're back in two minutes. Janice Wilborn is a fashion designer based in Atlanta. She was in her clothing shop Saturday night when riots broke out 
Here she is in the midst of that crisis in her own words. I have two display windows on Peachtree Street, and unfortunately, both of them was hit with stones when I was down on the floor. Soon I heard that boom. So we crawled to the back of the shop just to get out of the way. Then we went on down in the basement and got on 911. All of this is material stuff in here, but our lives are more important. But we don't have to go through what we're going through to make it stronger for the next generation. There's no telling what tomorrow will bring. Janice Wilborn, in her own words, I want to spend our last segment uh, with this remarkable panel this evening talking about uh, the future, what maybe the other side of this uh, all looks like, uh, and try to get some hope behind it, but also try to understand who's going to pay for it and how we're all going to get there. Let me start with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who you've been very patient this evening with us. Um, Realistically, um, and you've been about as bang on, spot on as, as anybody, if we're having this conversation a year from now, Will there be a vaccine? And, and who, by the way, I'd ask you this, it, who should pay for it? Yeah, Andrew, we're going to get through this, and we're going to be able to vanquish this with our technology. When you think about this purely from the public health dimension, what we've experienced together, and we have experienced this together, even though we haven't experienced it equally, to Gary's points, I think this has both created uh, inequities in society and revealed them as well. Um, this has not affected everyone equally, but we will get through this. I think heading into the fall, we might have to contend with one more cycle of COVID this fall. Hopefully it doesn't become epidemic. But heading into the end of 2020 and into 2021, we should have a vaccine. There is promise, and we should have more than one therapeutic in the fall that's going to help reduce the morbidity, the death and disease from from COVID. And who should pay for it, doctor? Who should pay for the vaccine for everyone? This goes to the whole issue of inequality, of of who's going to be able to get access to the The, vaccine and who's ultimately going to pay for it. The vaccine has to be widely available, and the government needs to support the wide distribution of the vaccine. And they do for other vaccines. They do for childhood vaccines, and we do that for influenza vaccines. I posted data today showing that um, death rates and hospitalizations from flu are, are twice the rate in lower-income neighborhoods and in, in higher-income neighborhoods in this country. And that's primarily because of inequities in access to vaccines and also antiviral drugs for flu. So we see the disproportionate impact of flu on different people because of in, un, uh, unequal access. We need to make sure it doesn't happen with a COVID vaccine. Right. Let me go to Gary and Heidi real quick. You can do a little bit of your debate in class. We don't have that much time, but I do want to ask you about this. On the other side of this, there's going to be a big debate about who should pay for all of the trillions of dollars we have spent thus far and may need to continue to spend. There's a real debate about whether you want to tax corporations, whether you want to tax individuals, and if you're going to do it, when do you do it, especially if you're still trying to recover and, and, and create growth and create jobs. Heidi, what's your answer? Well, first off, you can tax corporations um, all you want, but if they have negative net income, there isn't going to be any money coming in. We're going to have to do bite the bullet and do something that um, I would have not ever thought I would say. We're going to have to deficit spend, but we're going to have to deficit spend with a plan on how we're going to pay it back, whether it's long-term bonding, whether it is asking those of us who have the most to contribute more. I think that's absolutely has to be in the mix. And, you know, the problem that we have in Washington is so many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, Republican colleagues, have taken a pledge never to raise taxes. Well, if you're going to spend, you should raise taxes. Otherwise, we are transferring this debt to the younger generation. And also, it's the largest 
interracial transfer of debt in the history right. of our country because the younger generation is more multiracial. Right. Gary, we only got we only got a couple minutes here, so so help me real quick. Uh, you, you you help lower lower the taxes so, in this country. If you were if you were back in that position, would you raise them? So let me start by saying, Andrew, corporations are people. People own corporations. People work at corporations. They're all the same. I wouldn't touch corporations because we want to attract jobs back to America. The individuals are going to pay it. The high, the high income earners and the wealthy Americans are going to end up paying for this in the end. Hey, Andrew, it's Jake. Do you mind if I jump in? Yep, please. Andrew, Andrew look, we talked about at the opening about solutions and, you know, near-term solutions to getting through this. I want to thank Dr. Scott Gottlieb um, you know, for providing us with information because you can't have solutions without information. Um, we've talked a lot about corporate structure and the like. We, we need to encourage people to continue to provide information as to where they stand. Our public companies are required to do it. They owe it to their investors. To the extent they're doing it, it's helping us find solutions. Our state and Local governments need to provide us with information about where they stand so we know who needs money and why, what they need it for. This kind of information in our economy and the, and the health information that, that Dr. Gottlieb and his colleagues provide is so important. We can't operate unless we know what's safe and what's not safe or where we're going. And the right. continued sharing of information, Andrew, and, and in, in, you know, as we learn it, we're not going to be perfect, right. but as we learn more, it is so important. Okay. Uh, with that, I want to thank my entire uh, panel of guests for a tremendous conversation. Uh, thank you, and uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Shark Tank begins right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.